0: you know what i mean it's uh, people in the second half of unbound just die um which is why i'm considering the strategy I, I i'm not saying i'm 100 percent doing it but it's a consideration of mine right now
1: Hello, hello. Welcome back to episode 10 of the Matchbox podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and today I'll be joined by my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, as well as Ignition co-founder, Dylan Johnson. First off, I just want to thank you all for sticking with us as we've finally made it to double-digit episodes. We've got a lot more in store, and we're continuing to develop our podcasting skills, so stay tuned for more to come. This week, we start off the show with a little bit of race recap banter. Dylan is hot off his mediocre result at the Belgian Ride California race last weekend. Andrew tells us a little bit about his less-than-pleasant experience at Tour of the Gila. And I briefly talk about missing the cut at the local U.S. Open qualifier, as well as getting dropped at our first local gravel race of the season. Yikes. Then, we get into our main topic this week, VO2 Max. What is VO2 Max? Can we train it? And if so, how? This is a big topic, but we do our best to break it down in a relatively short manner for y'all. So, as always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, drop us an email at info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title The Matchbox Podcast. Or you can find us on Instagram and send us a DM. Next week, we're planning to do uh, an entire episode with just question and answers. So, please, send us those questions. All right, let's get into it. Hey, hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Hey. What's up? Got three of us here today, Andrew and Dylan. Uh, Dizzle is tiling his shower today, so if you're wondering why he's not here, he's being handy. Uh, so we're coming together today, and we're we're going to talk about the topic of VO2 max. What is VO2 max? How can we train it? Can we even train it? Um, and wh- what is its relevancy in the the world of cycling and endurance training? Uh, but before we get into that today, we've got some racing to talk about. I think all three of us today have some, some racing from this past weekend or at least past week that we can talk about. So, uh, let's get into that a little bit, Dylan. I know you were, you were at a big race this weekend. Let's have you start. Sure. Sure.
0: Yeah. I did the, I did the BWR California race. Um, and I'll just be honest. It's it's probably one of the, one of the worst races that I've had in a very long time. (laughs) Um, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sit here and sound like I'm making excuses cause I hate that, but this is just kind of how, you know, in reflection of how the race went, this is, this is where I think things went wrong. Um, I think first thing was that I did a hundred mile mountain bike race the weekend before and those take a bit to recover from, but, uh, the race, um, started- which one was that? Was that the, uh, big frog? Uh yeah well Big Frog is the 100k version and then uh, the Kohada 100 is the 100 mile version. Okay, that I did.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. And how did you do there? I won, so you that won. one went well. Heck yeah! <laughs> did you win by a lot or a little? Uh, 16 minutes. <laughs> so maybe if lot. you would have won by one minute, you could have saved some I, energy for BWR.
0: For sure. For sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> or just
0: not done it because it's not really that important of a race, but. Um yeah so uh uh in reflection so i i ended up getting twenty seventh at b w r um and my normalized power was was quite a bit lower than I would typically expect for a race of that duration. I think it was like two sixty seven just as uh, you know as a reference point, i think last year i did maybe 287 for the same for the exact same race um i think what may have happened was that the there was a climb into this first sort of single track double track section and and we went insanely hard up the climb uh harder than i was probably physically able to go my normalized power for Uh, I think this like three and a half minute climb, or my average power for this three and a half minute climb was like 465 Watts, which is a lot for me for three and a half minutes. And I was pretty cooked just doing that. And we're, we're only 10 minutes into the race. And I, I burnt a lot of matches after that, trying to get back to the front group. And then there's another single track section that I, I also didn't get good positioning in. So I had to burn a lot of matches to get back to the front group. After that as well, it was kind of like two, two, two uh, sections back-to-back back where I was kind of cut off guard and and had to catch the front group. So uh, by the time we got to the halfway point of the race, I was already pretty smoked. And and then i I got dropped from the front group, and honestly zone two was about all I could do for the rest of the day. So that's how that went.
2: I, yeah I, have a I question. was watching
1: some of or go ahead Andrew
2: yeah so <laughs> I I heard a little bit about this race from my teammate Sean Berger who was who was there racing mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you knew this Dylan but he apparently the story goes that he was he was on your wheel um, you guys were going through maybe like a single track section and mm-hmm. uh, you know you guys were focused on racing and and there was like a maybe like a six inch tall stump and you sort of swerved out of the way, you know, to avoid yeah. it. And, you know, he just missed it and, and plowed into it and snapped his forks. Yep. And the snap was so loud. It was <laughs> insane
0: how loud the snap was. And I looked back and I, I saw that he crashed into the stump and I, you know, but poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. He he came up to me after the race and I was like, "Dude, are you okay?" And he's like, "Yeah, I'm fine. It's just my bike." And I was like, "Well, glad you're okay, man."
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's what I know about the the race. Is that there were stumps? <laughs> was it on a descent? It was it was a
0: flat,
1: but we were hauling, you know. Okay. So, he was yeah. probably on a road bike too, I'm I'm guessing.
0: He a lot of a people on
1: road bikes. Bike I don't really under or- I don't
0: really understand hmm. the need to run road tires and road bike like there's a lot of people in 32 road tires on that course just baffles me why people would choose that um (laughs) i went with 40s which i think was the right call and uh pretty sure the winner alexa Vermeulen, was on 40s as well
1: so yeah so carrie werner had mentioned that he wished he was on the 40 mil tires instead of the 30s or whatever he ran Yep. Yeah, makes sense. I was
0: actually, I I actually stayed with Carrie, and we were talking about that. I think that uh, Keegan Swenson and Russell um, Finsterwald told him to do thirty twos, which blows my mind as well. They're mountain bikers and they run two point four Maxxis tires on their mountain bikes. Why? Why do they think that at BWR you need to go the opposite direction? I don't get it. But (laughs) uh, yeah, especially with this sabotage. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, they weren't they weren't there, so it's not like Harry okay, was right. their competition. But yeah, I I I don't understand how on the mountain bike side they're going wider and wider and wider, and then for this BWR race, they're like, oh, dude, 32s is all you need. I, I don't get it. Yeah, but, I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's that's um, how BWR went. Yeah, I I I watched the post race. Well, I mean, I, I watched the Instagram live footage post race. Mm-hmm. Which for anyone who wants to watch a six-hour gravel race in under five minutes, that's the way to go. They do a really good job of of documenting the whole race on their Instagram live feed. But you can watch it after the after the race is over. And it was awesome. Um, but yeah, Dylan, I like you. You seemed like you were bouncing back to the to the front group, and like you were recovering pretty well. But then um, I don't know, man. Just I was
0: not. I was not recovering pretty well. Yeah. I was barely holding on. <laughs> yeah I, uh, so what i'll say about that is that i tend to not do well if if uh like my my 20 minute power and my five minute power is often not as good as the riders that i'm usually finishing around my competition but if we take that all the way out to our you know our six hour power our seven hour power our eight hour power that's where that's where I catch up to people, and these races are six hours, seven hours. So, if there's something very hard in the course in the first hour of the race when everybody's legs are fresh, that's usually not good for me because mm-hmm. uh, if everyone has fresh legs, you know I, I don't have the same power as them but if if there's something if there's like a climb or something at the end of the race and everybody's on tired legs i can usually hold my own is it, it's what i usually find and it's so, the same thing as when you know like yeah, whenever i've done a short track race i usually do terrible uh it's like the shorter the race the worse i do the longer the race the better i do in general is what i'd say
1: yeah but in a race like this it's not like you can just go out and ride your own pace for six hours because there's so much group dynamics right. and drafting and and everything like that right so you're you're trying to expend energy early just to stay with that faster front group yeah exactly and what i'll say to
0: that is that if i had ridden my own pace from the beginning and just said screw drafting i'm just going to ride at my own pace i certainly would have finished better but you know hindsight's 2020. And also that's, that's almost never the race tactic going into a race. Like you think Mm -hmm. you're just going to stay with the front group. That being said, uh, for unbound, I'm thinking about doing a radical pacing strategy that I almost guarantee no one is thinking about doing. And, and that is to essentially to give myself a limit, uh, To how hard i want to go and the limit's going to be relatively low because it's such a long race essentially what that means is i'm going to get dropped early when i could have easily stayed with the front group but i'll have so much more in the tank in the second half of the race and for anybody who's done unbound you know that the second half of the race is where the race is won and lost people die in the second half whether it's mechanicals or cracking or bonking or whatever it is all of that uh I'll have so much more in the tank than everyone else in the second half of the race that hopefully I'll be able to catch people and make up a bunch of time. I haven't decided 100% whether I'm going to try that strategy or just try the approach that everyone's going to take, which is try to stay with the front group <laughs> as long as you can and then, and then get to the finish. Um, but I'm, I'm considering doing the former, uh, doing this like governor approach.
2: I like it. I think you should do it. I'm excited to see how that works. Yeah. I definitely I mean, would not do that, but <laughs> we're very different <laughs> well, riders, most, so.
0: most people wouldn't do that. And the, the first two times I did the race, I didn't do that. And the second half of the race was, you know, I felt awful. Um, yeah, that's what as, I was going to ask. Have
1: you compared, like, your front half to the second half, like, power output? Yeah, it's slower.
0: And, it's slower yeah. and you do less power. And and that's, that's universal across the board. Like, there is no one who's doing more power in the second half of Unbound than the first half. Even I even the front, you should uh, be like, the
1: first person ever.
0: Well, I, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm highly thinking about it. And and what would happen? What is I would get dropped probably. The race doesn't start super hard because I think people know that it's so long, and it's not like there's a climb in the first part of the race. It's all the whole thing is rolling hills. So it what would probably happen is I would get dropped two or three hours in. And I would, I would surf groups. Like if there's somebody to draft with, I'd draft with them. If there's not, then I wouldn't, but I just keep a consistent pace all day. And I'd, I'd be in a lot better shape than, than pretty much everybody for the second half of the race. The question is, is, uh, would I already be too far? Like, would I already have too much of a disadvantage from not drafting with the group? Would I already be on the back foot? that I don't have time to catch everyone else. Um,
2: Well, here's the thing though, is like, you're not going to be completely alone. Like just because you're not in the front group Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're not going to be in a group. And I think maybe what will be key to this plan is like, if you're racing with that second group, you can sort of use yourself to motivate those guys say like, Hey gang, Mm -hmm. it's me, Dylan Johnson from YouTube. (laughs) Like like, we can make it, we can make it to the front group. You just have to work extremely hard yeah so i'll
0: say i'll say that 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 might work well for the first half of the race i can already tell you what will happen if i use this plan for the second half of the race is there will be no one to work with if i catch someone they'll be too gassed to help me right because at that point if i'm catching them i'm i'm way fresher than everybody in the second half because i've used this plan um and if I'm catching them, they've been dropped from the front group, and they're probably on the edge of cracking or bonking, etc. Uh, there will be no one to work with for the second half of the race. It'll just be me catching people, as long as something bad doesn't happen. Like I myself don't have a flat or crack or bonk, which is uh, all of that
1: is very possible at Unbound. So, have you ever gone back to look at your like power data or ju- or just data in general? Mm-hmm. Um, And compared when you're riding in the group versus when you're either off the back or off the, well, probably not off the front because you're going harder, but like when you're Mm -hmm. just riding solo, um, I I would guess that like your average power in the group might be a little lower, but your normalized might be higher. You're probably spiking quite a bit more than you would get if you were just riding consistently off the back. Yeah,
0: the variability index is... uh yeah, there's there's greater variability while, when you're in the group, which mm-hmm. can be detrimental for a race like Unbound because, uh, you know, you in a perfect world you don't want to go over your threshold at any point during Unbound. Um, so the fact that you have to do that basically on any on every single climb, but then you get a you know a little bit of a rest because you're drafting with everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, even just just migrating around in the group you know i mean Uh, yeah migrating around here to get around someone or whatever yep Um, yep there yeah. yeah
0: there's there's uh there's more power spikes there's higher variability when you're in the group for sure um also uh both times that i've done unbound the my normalized power for the second half was considerably lower than the first half i mean it's not even close uh and and <laughs> both times that I did it I was actually catching people in the second half which means that I'm actually faring better than pe- mm-hmm. people around me and my normalized power is so much lower like you know what I mean it's uh, people in the second half of unbound just die um which is why I'm considering the strategy I, I i'm not saying i'm 100% doing it but
1: it's a consideration of mine right cool that would be exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about
2: you, yeah, Adam? Well, I'll go, you do any yeah, races? I'll go next.
1: Um, actually, I did finally have some racing again. Uh, so first, Monday, I had a uh, golf tournament, had a U.S. Open qualifier, which unfortunately I did not qualify for. Um, took a even par 72 to make it out, and I shot 78. So, eh, wasn't super stoked on that. I'd been actually training fairly hard on and on the bike and on the golf course, trying to prep for that. But I think I overdid it. Um, my back was super sore on Monday morning when I woke up and I like tried to ride it out on like a 30 minute warm-up ride before going to the golf course and still felt tight and just kind of felt tight the whole day. Um, just think I maybe overdid it the week before in preparation. Um, that wasn't the reason why I just some other factors. I just didn't play my best. Um, but it was super fun to just get back into the thick of things. Uh, was my first competition since mid-march so almost seven eight weeks without any competition so it's always fun to get back into it uh so yeah that was monday tuesday we started our local gravel race series which is uh tuesday night kind of small uh group of of us so there was like 40 or so maybe 40 or yeah i think 42 riders that came out for it um which is awesome good turnout uh it's like a 24 no 20 22 and a half mile course that we do very fast um very flat on the first half it's like all completely flat roads on the way out and then it's like a lollipop loop so then the second half of the lollipop going the other direction is super rolling hills so like you're constantly either going up or down so it's a fun course um i got spanked by one of our local riders ken pike shout out to him uh, he's been training super hard he's going to be doing some of the bigger gravel races this year and he's just been putting in way more hours than I have. Uh, so I knew going in, he was the the fittest rider to, to watch out for. Um, he, he sent some like early attacks within the first 20 minutes or so that were just like way above my pay grade. I was able to hold his wheel, but, um, I knew that I was putting out way too much energy early on is only an hour effort. Um, but if you're going way above yourself in the first 20 minutes of an hour effort, Oh, uh, you're kind of doomed. So, um, so I stayed with him for the first 30 minutes and then he dropped me on this, like probably one mile road section and I was doing 500 Watts on his wheel and he was pulling away from me. Like I just, uh, and that was it. <laughs> um, so then I pretty much just solo TT'd the last half hour back to the finish line. Um, yeah, he got me by a minute by the, by the time we got back to the finish line, so in the last 30 minutes, he put 60 seconds on me, which was a lot. Uh, so needless to say, we got three more Tuesday night races to round out the local gravel series, and I'm definitely going out for some re- revenge next week. Um, not to say that I'm going to be any fitter, but hopefully the strategy will be a little bit better next week because uh, Ken's uh, beyond f- my fitness level at this point, but uh, maybe some better tactics could, could help keep me up there longer um yeah so that's that's my racing um should have a lot more racing in may and june coming up which will be fun uh andrew i know you you've been talking about it a lot the last few shows (laughs) so tell us about your racing last week
2: yeah yeah let me tell you about tour of the gila so true the gila is at altitude in new mexico it's a uci stage race i did with my team cs fellow um Yeah, so this is all going to be pretty anticlimactic because um, I went from Boulder to Phoenix, met my teammate Christian in Phoenix, and then we drove to New Mexico to meet the rest of the team um, at Silver City. And um, sometime between when I left Boulder and when we started driving to Phoenix, I got food poisoning. Mm. (laughs) And so... (laughs) Uh, on the drive in from Phoenix, uh, my stomach just really hurt. It was just in knots. And I, um, I generally have a pretty iron gut. I don't have a lot of dietary restrictions and, um, can generally eat sort of whatever and and feel good and perform well. Um, so I, I didn't really read much into it. I didn't think it was a big deal, but, um, you know, from that first day through the second day of racing, I just like couldn't eat basically because like I was just in so much like GI distress that, um, I couldn't, I couldn't get in enough calories. And so, um, first day, um, you know, so this is a, a super climby race. My team was, was going for GC. Um, so I was definitely there in a support role. It's also my first race back after, um, you know, having first, first real race back after having broken my collarbone, not that long ago. Um, and so the team just wanted me to, to support and, um, you know, and were it's you nice in a support role
1: primarily cause you're not like, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a climber, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So the first stage, um, finishes with like a 20 minute climb. And so, you know, that's, that's an event that's just not going to be good for me. I mean, there were some, some more sprint stages that, um, you know, I was hoping I could do well on. Um, but you know, I did my job on the first day, um, and kind of got, you know, the majority of the way through the stage. Um, and you know, I I dropped myself and man, I just, it felt like I hit a wall harder than I ever had before. Like, I think the lack of calories just left me like completely empty. And so, um, you know, I was just sort of like rolling into the finish or wasn't really worried about time cut. And, you know, I bet you it took me like 45 minutes to do like a, a 5k climb, (laughs) you know, I was just going so dang slow. Um, you know, and so stage two, um, which is, you know, a little bit harder. Um, you know, I just, I just didn't have anything, you know, so, so my week, my week was super, super tough. Um, you know, it's hard to say how I would have gone, um, you know if uh, you know if the stomach was cooperating more, I think it was going to be a hard race for me either way. Um, but but it was it was really good racing. It was super hard. Um, Project Echelon was there, which was sort of the maybe the team to beat, um, or at least that's that's sort of like how we felt after um, them coming off a, a, a win at Redlands, which is another big stage race. Um, but we were also battling with a continental team from Canada, Toronto Hustle who has Mateo Dilson. Um, And then there's a team out of Mexico, uh, Canals, you know, who's who's really sort of climbing focus. So they, they were definitely out for blood. Um, now, the, the second story that I'll tell from, from Tour of the Gila is that although I was, was really hurting and, and truthfully wasn't a ton of help given my condition, um, my teammate, Sean Gardner... Um, former Everesting world record holder, won GC. So it was a huge Sweet. win for us, uh, super proud of him. Um, we won Team GC as well. So we had, you know, that's that's taking the time for the first three finishers of each stage. And so we had, you know, a couple of other really strong guys there as well. And um, it was really like a, a pretty breakthrough ride for the team to win uh, win the overall at, at probably America's, you know, hardest current uci stage race so um super psyched on that i was glad to be there and kind of you know do what i could for the team but i'm definitely um looking for redemption going forward <laughs> nice. were, were you
1: able to write all was it five
2: stages negative yeah no um i was pretty pretty cracked after day two um, okay. I was, I was, I was completely empty. So, um, you know, I had to call it a week, a little bit short just cause there wasn't, wasn't much I could do, but, um, I did get in some good training and, um, you know, played team mom a little bit. So, so it, it was a good trip nonetheless. Um, you know, these things do happen. They're a little bit unpredictable. And so, um, I think it's important to, uh, kind of like maintain a positive mindset and just, just roll with the punches when those things happen you know, um, you know, and so that's what I did. And, you know, I, I still have kind of a, a positive outlook, um, you know, and and feel, feel grateful for my time out there. Cool. Yeah. That's
0: a bum, that's a bummer, man. Um, I think that, uh, related to that, the whole, at sea otter, the whole giant live team got sick. I don't know exactly what they had. It was some stomach virus or something and none of them could do the, the 80 K XC race on Saturday. Um, so yeah, these things happen.
2: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I knew what it was. (laughs) I wish I could like pinpoint this specific meal and then never have it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: You got to retrace your steps. Try everything you ate.
2: You retry it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The funky, the funky hotel water in Phoenix. I'll have to call and see if I can get like a sample.
0: (laughs) At at Sea Otter, we saw the Giant Live team eating at Whole Foods, and we were eating at Whole Foods just like out of the buffet. And uh, when I saw that they were like all sick and out of the race, I was like, oh, dude, I wonder if it was the Whole Foods, but I don't think it was.
2: (laughs) Well, sorry, Whole Foods. Sorry, Jeff Bezos. But, you know, funny enough, the last meal we had before hitting the road was. Uh, hot bar food at Whole Foods. Really? Yeah. You think that, so? You think that was it? You think there was something in that? Yeah. The hot, hot bar is always risky, right? Especially if you get mm. like fresh greens, like something that's uncooked from the hot bar. It's pretty yeah. risky. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have a friend who, is, who was eating at this like, you know, <laughs> super organic, all natural restaurant and got like a, you know, the super organic salad. And got like a few bites in and f- felt something crunchy and was like, hmm, that shouldn't have been in there. And like looked down and it was like a dead roach. Oh, like in, in the salad. Oh. And they were saying, like, well, yeah, sometimes that happens because like we don't use pesticides. We you know, we just clean everything with water and stuff. So like sometimes you get like some uh I don't know, insects that filter through and it's like gross. <laughs>
2: Yeah, they're, they're, I think there's something to be said for like processed foods <laughs> uh, or using maybe, pesticides. Maybe at, le- at least like a couple days before your
1: race. <laughs> right. Um, but hey, so anyway, so yeah, bummer your result didn't go the way you wanted, but congrats on the, the team effort. Um, so you said you got a positive outlook. You, you got some quality training in. Uh, what are you training for next? What's What's coming up next?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, going forward, we, you know, we got some crits on the schedule kind of leading up to, to U S pro nationals, which will be, a, I'll do the road race and the crit. Um, so yeah, yeah, that'll be kind of nice, um, to kind of just, um, you know, get back to some short duration events, a little bit of a change of pace, get my crit legs back. Um, and so this week in particular, um, I'm sort of taking a rest and test approach, so um, I really didn't take any rest weeks leading up to Tour de the Gila because I was so crunched on time with, you know, having had the collarbone surgery and so much of the training I was doing was low intensity anyway. Um, we sort of just like ramped right into that with only like a very small kind of taper before the event. So um, I'm taking this week to actually, you know, fully rest up, um, recover from from all the altitude and uh, I'm gonna be doing some some testing just to see see where I'm at, see how the training you know has worked, and um, you know whether or not all of that altitude had a, a positive effect or not.
1: <laughs> cool. Will and will that testing just be like a routine FTP test, or will there be other aspects to it?
2: Yeah. So I'm I'm actually gonna go through sort of the, the full gamut of energy systems there. So I'll do like a a 20 second effort, three minute effort, a five minute effort and a 20 minute effort. So, um, we're going to get like the full, full lay of the land. And, and, um, the idea there is that we can see where everything is at and see sort of, um, you know, what areas might need to be addressed in training versus what things are kind of like up to stuff. And, um, my expectation is that, um, you know, the 20 minute, the, the longer kind of more aerobic set of things will be better right? You know, when you're at altitude, you, you have this big aerobic stimulus, but you can't push as much power. So I'm expecting that, you know, the shorter duration efforts will be um, a little bit more deficient, but that that's the stuff that I'm naturally good at. And um, sometimes I think you would be surprised if you've just done like a ton of base miles, how, how well you can go on, you know, even the short stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I like that approach. I, I try to get my athletes to do kind of that, uh, you know, all encompassing, uh, I call it FTP assessment, um, or just fitness assessment. Usually when I'm doing those, uh, like two or three times a year, if we can fit it in, I love to do one like at the beginning of the year, just to set a baseline and then do another one at the end of base season. If we can fit it in again, it's not super critical, but, um, it's good if we can, cause it, it, I love when the athlete gets to see that all of their energy systems have improved, even if we've just been training base miles. Um, it's just really cool to see. So, like, it kind of reassures them that you don't have to be doing high intensity work all the time and you can still benefit with some of these energy systems without even uh, training those specifically. Um, and then maybe like at the end of the season or something, or, or you know, some, somewhere around like a peak event just to kind of see where. Uh, where you're at kind of peak fitness wise. Um, but yeah, that's, that sounds like a cool approach. Uh, so Dylan, how about you? Uh, BWR is over. Do you have anything else coming up before unbound or is unbound the, the next race for you?
0: Uh, it's not the next race. There are, um, C and B priority races. Uh, for example, this, this weekend is a Southeast gravel race, purely a C race, just, going to use it for training. Um, although I will say I'll be hopefully recovered going into it because I was absolutely smoked this week after doing back-to-back seven-hour races, um, you know, Kohata and then BWR. And I haven't done a lot of training this week. I've just been kind of recovering. So hopefully by this Saturday I'll be recovered and feeling good again, um, which is when the Southeast gravel races. But then – the week after is gravel locos in Texas, which is 150 miles, which I think will be a really good test for Unbound. Um, 150 miles is obviously, you know, it's it's uh, three quarters of the duration. Uh, it probably will be less than three, or it's three quarters of the distance. It'll probably be less than three quarters of the duration, just because that gravel is a bit faster. Um, but you know, seeing how I feel at the end of gravel locos will probably give me a good indicator to how I feel at that point in the race at unbound, especially considering the fact that gravel locos is pretty stacked this year. A lot of the fast riders that are doing unbound are also doing gravel locos. So it's just kind of going to be a, uh, test the nutrition, test the, test the
1: pacing. Um, and then three weeks later we got unbound, which is the big goal. So, so you got three weeks between gravel locos and unbound. Um, let's say something doesn't seem quite right. Like if your fitness Mm -hmm. isn't quite where you want it to be, will there be enough time for you to turn around and make some adjustments to your training or will you just stay the course and hope for the best? Yeah. So I had such a bad race this past weekend at
0: BWR and, uh, and I hope that's not an indication of where my fitness is. I hope it was just, you know, a combination of factors that led to a a, a bad race on that particular day. Um, but if if I get to Gravel Locos and I have a similarly bad race where I feel like my fitness is actually for my fitness for long races is actually suffering right now, I'm gonna throw the hail mary and I'm gonna do a block week. Uh, not the week out. I'll I'll give myself a week to recover from gravel locos, and then I'll do it. Uh, I'll do it the week, the second week, and then I'll have a week to recover before
1: Unbound. That's that is that'll kind of be like that'll be your taper, basically, is doing a block week and then recover. Uh,
0: That's that's very much Plan B, though. I'm not. I'm not. Hopefully, I will not do that. But if I find my fitness is not where I want it to be after gravel locos that that's that's kind of like the last ditch effort for me to be in good shape for unbound.
1: Yeah. And would there ever be a point in time where you would just kind of drop the priority of unbound and and re-switch focus to something else or that's kind of the. I don't think so. I
0: don't think so. Cause that's not only is unbound a big, big deal in itself, but it's also part of the lifetime grand prix series, which is my over, overall goal for the season so as an individual race it's a goal as part of an overall season it's a goal i don't i don't see myself dropping unbound as a priority um yeah and by the way people who are listening that don't know what a block week is because i realized i just threw that threw out that term without explaining it basically it it would probably be five or six high intensity days in one week which is obviously not typical Um, and it's something that you should do with extreme caution, I would say. Uh, and, and the, the key to making it work is having enough recovery afterwards. So I I've done it in the past and I've seen a lot of fitness gain from doing it, but I've also screwed it up. So, so that's why I'm saying it's, it's like a, a final hail Mary throw. If I'm, if I'm not, if I'm not in shape by gravel locos and need to do something.
1: So. And for anyone who is familiar with a block week, Dylan, uh, would, would a block period for unbound look different than a block period for, uh, you know, a cross country mountain bike race or something like that? Like, would you actually stack those workouts in a different configuration or, you know, completely different composition?
0: probably the main dist- the main difference is that the volume of the week would be higher so usually the volume is is not really a priority for that week at all it's like whatever the volume ends up being that's what it is don't don't try to do more than that the the priority is getting in these high intensity sessions but since unbound is such a high volume event it i would probably try to tack on endurance miles to the end of every single one of those workouts as well um it still wouldn't be a super high volume week like it's not it's not going to be a 30 hour week or anything by any means but uh it it would probably be a 20 hour week at least gotcha cool Mm -hmm.
1: well guys you want to hop into the topic here 35 minutes in okay so today we're bringing you vo2 max discussion uh, let, let's start off with a with a kind of textbook definition of what VO two max is. Like what we're referring to. Maybe this is a new term for you. You've never even heard of this term before. Um, maybe you have. But you don't really know what it is, or you've seen it in one of your training zones, um, but you're not really sure what it what it refers to. Um, Andrew, do you want to give us a textbook definition of VO two max? Yeah.
2: So we can define VO two max as the maximal rate. Of oxygen consumption. <laughs> so um, it's a rate because it's it's measured in milliliters per minute. So it's uh, sort of like an ongoing measurement over time. Um, and sometimes this is presented as a relative measure. That's how most people are probably familiar with it. It would be milliliters per minute per kilogram of body weight. So, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a number would be like 70 Seventy milliliters of oxygen per minute per kilogram body weight, um, but could also be presented as an absolute term. And I, I think something
0: that you know for people who are unfamiliar with this concept, uh, like when you when you give that definition, I'm sure there's probably some people thinking, "So is that like the maximum amount of air I can breathe?" <laughs> Which it's not. It's it's the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can utilize um, to, you know, produce, produce energy. So th- that's an important distinction there. And in fact, the amount of air that you can breathe, we were just talking this about this is not even necessarily a limiting factor for, uh, elite endurance athletes.
2: Right. Right. Well, and to kind of piggyback on that real quick without getting too, too into the weeds, but part of, um, VO two max is your body's ability to like absorb, Like, not just oxygen from the air, but to absorb the oxygen from our blood. So the blood goes out to the Mm -hmm. working tissues. Um, We do not, I mean, maybe the very most trained can, but generally speaking, part of the limitation to your VO2 max is your actual ability to pull the oxygen away from the blood and, uh, you know, use it in the muscles. So, yeah, for sure. While, while Adam is gone, what would be a, a layman's definition of VO2 max? How, how do we understand this in sort of like a less scientific or maybe like a more colloquial way?
0: Mm, well, I think, I, I think that's what I was just trying to get out there with, uh, you know, um, it's the oxygen that your body is utilizing. What do you
2: still, still too complicated, man. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll, I'll just right. give my definition because you're not saying what I want you to say. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I I like to think of it as um, the size of your aerobic engine. Mm. Right. So it's like, yeah. um, like you know, maybe your FTP is like how well tuned that engine is, but mm-hmm. but VO two max is like the raw size of your your engine. Mm-hmm. Set, sets sets a, a ceiling, if you will. <laughs> right. Yeah, and a lot of uh,
0: uh, if we're talking about the different, maybe maybe we were supposed to talk about this later. But a lot of the difference between so, if we're talking about increasing FTP, uh, it's kind of like we're talking about what percentage of that VO two max we can utilize. So, you know, VO two max being the ceiling, and then it's like how close to the ceiling can we
2: get with their FTP. Right. So, if your power at VO2 max is 450 watts, your FTP is not going to be 450 watts, right? Mm -hmm. Because those things aren't going to (laughs) coincide. Right. Um, And so, yeah. I mean, I don't know what what numbers you've seen before, Dylan, for like fractional utilization, but I think you know maybe people can get up to like 85 percent or something like that at the top end.
0: I think at the very, very elite level, 90 percent might be might might be the limit um, yeah for, for like the elite of the elite and a lot of times uh, there's been studies that show that elite amateurs and pros uh they don't even necessarily have a huge difference in their vo2 max the main difference is is uh how much of their vo2 max they're utilizing
2: right and so you know just just for all of our listeners out there who want some practical advice and Maybe this isn't super practical and that these things are sort of hard to measure. We need to use, you know, at the minimum, like some sophisticated software to measure this. But um, where your fractional utilization is can give us insight into what we need to train. So, you know, if you're, let's say, a time trialist and you're at 88% of your VO2 max for your threshold, no matter how much threshold you do, you're, you're probably not going to improve anymore because you're already sort of tapped out there so that's where maybe vo2 max training can come in and uh Mm
3: -hmm. you
2: know allow you to kind of like raise raise the ceiling and and reach new highs whereas like you know for somebody who does no threshold training your your fractional utilization could be like 65 or 70 percent and there's just so much room for your your threshold your anaerobic threshold to improve so maybe that's where we start right Yeah. So,
1: what are what are some um, what are some different methods that are commonly used for measuring VO two max? Uh, we could talk about cyclists specifically, but we can also talk about uh, you know other other disciplines as well. Um, how how would one go about either estimating or actually quantifying their VO two max? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the the kind of the most obvious and the most surefire way is some sort of graded exercise test in a lab. Um, you'd be doing, um, gas exchange where you're measuring oxygen consumption and CO2 expelled. Um, so you're, you're directly measuring these things, you know, by wearing a mask, that's measuring what you're breathing in and what you're breathing out. And, um, the proportion of what you're breathing out will tell you how much of that oxygen was actually consumed and then converted to CO2, you know, and so this would be like a ramp test or like a step test. Um, and one thing that is important to note is that um, although this is the most accurate method for measuring VO2 max, um, it's not 100% reliable because the protocols will will um, affect, you know, whether or not you can even achieve your VO2 max. So, like, if you were to ramp up too quickly and you weren't very fit, um, you would just, like, blow your legs up before you even reached you right. know, like a plateau in your oxygen consumption. So, um, you know, if if listeners out there are going to go and get this tested, make sure that whoever is testing it has um, a really good protocol in mind and they're adjusting that protocol for your particular fitness level. Um, but you can do this for cycling or running. You can do it on a treadmill like in a lab. I don't, I don't know how they would do it for cross-country skiing, but everybody loves to talk about how high – uh, the VO two max of cross country skiers is. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's also important to bring up here that, uh, your VO two max for one sport might not necessarily be your VO two max for another sport. In fact, it most likely is not.
2: Yeah. And that has to do with like the amount of muscle mass that you're recruiting. So, um, you know, like your legs maybe have like a fixed amount of oxygen that they can kind of consume, At a given exercise intensity. But if you're also bringing your arms in, like that absolute Mm -hmm. quantity of oxygen consumed is going to be higher. So, generally speaking, the more muscle mass is recruited for a given exercise modality, the higher the VO2 max will be, like within an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can estimate this if. If people were wondering, using software, so like WKO can estimate VO2 max, um, your Garmin, if you have like a, like a Garmin head unit will estimate VO2 max. Um, I've read the white papers on that. It's been a while. I don't, I think it's generally accepted that this isn't super accurate, but um, it, it should probably be ballpark. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Robert, one of our coaches, we were literally just talking about this this exact uh, issue like an hour ago in our in our meeting. Um, he was saying that if the Garmin watch is reading power, um, then it actually may be fairly accurate because the the algorithms that they use, you know, humans are not. What he was saying was that humans are not that different. Um, so. If if you can get somebody's power at VO2 max and you know their weight in you know in kilograms, you can get you can actually get a pretty good idea of what their VO2 max is.
2: I think the one thing that's that's maybe a, uh, a wrench in that, and maybe Robert talked about this, is the difference in efficiency, mm-hmm. right? Um, so like people have different efficiency levels at VO2 max as well, which is something that. Um, Stephen Siler has been talking about a lot I think recently or maybe I just became aware of him talking about it but that's something that actually goes up over time right so if we're doing a certain number of kilojoules um, you know like some some fraction of that is going towards actually like making power right like you can Mm -hmm. adjust your gross efficiency um, with training so um, you know let's say you have a a really, um, high VO two max, you could be extremely inefficient and a lot of that oxygen could not be going towards pedaling the bike.
1: <laughs> right. So yeah, when you're talking about efficiency, what exact, what, what type or like, what specifically what efficiency are you talking about there? Like, are you talking about pedaling efficiency, breathing efficiency? Like what, what, what do you mean by that?
2: It's, it's what I'm talking about is how much of the oxygen you're consuming is actually converted to like pedaling force. Um, so, so when you say that
1: someone could have a really high VO2 max, you mean like they have potential for a very high VO2 max, but they haven't no, realized it yet?:
2: No, like people people so here, so here's an interesting thing, right? So like um, let's say you take a rider who's like some freak right his name is like Soren or something you know he's a Norwegian cross country skier kid we get him on a bike we measure his VO2 max it's 90 freaking 5 like this kid is amazing you mm-hmm. know right and then you're also measuring so we have his VO2 max and then we're measuring his performance as well like on the bike like how well he's racing um you know and then you track him for like years and years his VO2 max could go down but his performance could go up and the reason for that is because his efficiency is probably going to improve. So that's like a major, major variable in performance. So, um, you know, when we're exercising and we're like burning calories, we're, we're combusting oxygen to make ATP, um, oxidizing rather, um, you know, so much of this is just converted to heat, right? Mm-hmm. So like the majority of the energy that we're using is not even like doing anything for us. It's just heat. Mm-hmm. Um, but if your efficiency goes up, um, you know, then more of that, the energy that we have available to us is actually going to pedaling. Um, and, and sadly I, I can't get into more detail than that because that's, that's the extent of my understanding of this concept. Um, mm-hmm. but it is sort of like a, Talked about, I think, well-founded thing. Maybe Dylan can speak yeah, to more.
0: That that's about that's about the limit of my knowledge as well. I don't know <laughs> that I would have anything to add to that.
1: Yeah, so you're saying you can you can increase your power at VO2max without improving your actual VO2 Max, right? That's kind of yes. what you're getting at there. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's you know, ultimately the goal of what we're trying to do here with with training you know is is in increasing our power at vo2 max cuz we you know if we go back to the conversation we were saying your your the ratio of your f- you know functional threshold relative to your power at vo2 max the the closer those get together the more limited you the more limited you are in, in your improvements in your functional threshold so in order to increase your ftp your vo2 max power has to go up so it's you know training your your efficiency, your power at VO2 max that will allow you more room to, to grow uh, everything else below that threshold and, and below.
2: And I I will say, and this is something that, you know, people um, were not always confident on, but you can actually improve your VO2 max. It's not, it is not the master master limiter of your ultimate athletic performance. Um, I think there are, there's only so much it can go up. And obviously some people have like, are going to have naturally a higher VO2 max than other people. So, you know, if you start, Mm -hmm. you know, you measure yours untrained and it's at 50 um, through tons and tons of training. I mean, it can become 70 maybe. So maybe there's a limit to like how much it can improve, but there's, it's, they used to think that it, you were just stuck with whatever you had. Yeah. Um, But you know, with that said, like, you know some people are just they're genetically superior in terms of vo2 max like it's just the start point is higher
0: yeah it's it's definitely a debated issue, and I think maybe some of that has to do with the fact that uh, elite athletes will you know they'll often hit their peak vo2 max relatively uh, at a at a relatively young age um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're at their peak performance yet. Sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and one thing that's sort of anecdotal, but um, is maybe a positive thing, um, is that I've heard that people who have a naturally high VO two max, that VO two max tend will tend to not go up more. So, if mm-hmm. if you measure off the couch at ninety milliliters per minute per kilogram, it's not going to go to one twenty. Whereas if Mm -hmm. it measures lower, I think there's, for whatever reason, there's like more more room. (laughs) So um, don't worry, folks. If you measure your VO two max and it's thirty or forty, we can still get it higher.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So if if an athlete comes to you, let's say it's a you know a new athlete or a potential athlete um, that's going to start working with you, and they say like, hey, is it worthwhile for me to go get my VO two max tested in a lab? Like, would you recommend that? Is it? Would you find that useful for you as a coach? No, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going to say as well. Yeah. So explain, because I think there are a lot of people out there who who feel like they're missing out on something if they don't know what their VO2 max is. Like they just want to know so bad. They've heard, you know, that these, you know, that some athletes have these, you know, off the chart VO2 max. Numbers and they just want to know so bad, and they feel like they're somehow limited in what they can do with their training if they, for some reason, don't know what their fitness potential is with oh, by that VO two max number. Which, um, what yeah, you're for,
2: missing out on if you haven't measured it is the ability to talk about how big it is if it is big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how.
0: Um, There's, there's probably not a lot that we would change with the training based off of whatever, whatever number you get back, Um, and uh, you know, uh, I don't know that that you know, maybe, maybe if the number was really high, the confidence boost would be good for you, but on on the flip side of that coin, maybe if it wasn't as high as you think it is, the uh, the whatever the opposite of a confidence boost is would be a negative.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it it's a good thing to know, and that it tells us something with with a lot of definition about what type of athlete they are, and like what the, what their strengths are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I suppose that is useful to me as a coach. But the truth is, is that you know, looking at you know what you can do in like a five to eight minute power range, we probably already know something about your VO two max. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in those of you out there who are listening to this and wondering what their VO2 max is, if it's really high, you probably know that it's really high. <laughs> mm-hmm. and if it's really by, low, you probably know that as well. <laughs> probably by somebody's five minute power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's there's good standards and tables out there that um, will tell you, you know, how high your relative five minute power is compared to others. You know, and there's that, that, that information is like pretty widely available. So, yeah. Oh. And if your if your five minute
0: power is is relatively high, and your twenty minute power, your FTP is is relatively lower, uh, that could give you an indication
1: that you've got room to grow. Right. Uh, so, if we talked about some of the contributing factors that make up
2: one's VO two max. This is where it gets fun. All right. So, so I I think something that's helpful in understanding this is um, something called the Fick equation, um, which is uh, kind of describes the constituent parts of like what makes up VO2 max. So, um, the Fick equation states that VO2 max is stroke volume, which is like the maximum amount of blood that your heart can pump with one beat, times heart rate. I'm like. That's to say max heart rate, which is something that doesn't... We know that that's not something that we change with training. If anything, it goes down as stroke volume goes up. And that's all times the um, the a VO 2 difference, which is um, something that we talked a little bit about earlier. It's the amount of oxygen that we're actually pulling out of the blood and consuming in the working tissue. Um, and so that's the um, arterial you know, oxygen level minus the venous or like the return oxygen amount. So we're measuring how much is going out and then how much is still in the blood on the way back. Um, And that's a function of um, capillary density, you know, and how well we can diffuse um, oxygen from the blood. Um, Some of this is also a function of like, you know, hemological stuff. So the amount of like myoglobin or hemoglobin in your blood um, that's the amount of oxygen that you can actually like carry per liter of blood. Um, mm-hmm. and then the, the heart side of things. So, um, the things that affect right. sort so volume for
1: anyone who is following that equation there. So if the amount of oxygen in the blood outbound is equal to the amount of oxygen in the blood inbound, then you'd be subtracting one from one, which is zero. So your VO two would be <laughs> zero. <laughs> Um, and that's kind of like the, you know, j- just understand the equation. So the higher, uh, the, or the, the lower, the ratio from inbound versus outbound, the higher your VO two max potential could be.
2: Right. Yeah. And Assuming so your should, stroke
1: volume and heart rate are staying the same.
2: Yeah. And, and they, they don't necessarily, you know, um, there's a lot of argument as to like which side of the equation we can improve more the peripheral or the central side of things. Um, And I think they used to think that it was um, mostly the peripheral side where we can improve things. Um, And we know that like all the zone two training we do improves mitochondrial function and mitochondrial density, capillary density. Um, You know, you're building new capillary beds and all those sorts of things like that. So you're improving diffusion of oxygen from the blood to the to the tissue, so we can improve that, and um, we do that through mostly, I think, like low intensity training. Um, but you can also improve the central factor because we know that cardiac remodeling takes place over time in athletes. And so I think what what we want to improve specifically, or like what the driving force of um, the central side of the equation is, is um, increasing the size of your left ventricle um, to pump more blood out. Um, and it's a little bit more complicated than this. Um, and, you know, there's there's good cardiac remodeling and bad cardiac remodeling, but the goal is to, like, improve the size of that chamber or the, the contractility or the, like, elasticity of the, the heart muscle. Like, all these factors that play a role in how much blood is actually getting pumped out. Mm-hmm. Blood volume, I think, is also a factor in this as well you know, if, if our blood volume increases from training, you know, like when we first get back to training or we're, we're training in the heat and plasma volume goes up, some of these things can, can play a role as well.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Blood yeah, volume sure. is one of the, uh, the first things that goes with detraining. So if you, if you've taken a week off the bike and then you get back on the bike and you feel like crap, most likely it's reduced blood volume and it actually comes back fairly quickly.
2: Yeah, you know, and then if we think about like me for just as an example of this, you know, I went to altitude, and like, what are the adaptations to altitude? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, increased, um, you know, hemoglobin content in the blood, so more oxygen carrying capacity in the blood. So, you know, if you were to test my VO two max now, um, you know, maybe it would be a little a little bit higher because we can carry more oxygen, but it depends on what the limiter is. you know, and, and another thing I'll I'll say on top of all this is I was doing some research before this and kind of just reading some some studies and there's some competing ideas about like where we're limited more or if we're um, limited by one thing at all. There's this idea that we that the systems don't allow each other to get out of balance and so we're like mm-hmm. globally limited at any given time. You know that if we improve one. Quality, like so. For instance, if we can improve stroke volume, then the the peripheral side of things will just like go up in tandem. Right. But I th- it's it's debated.
0: It, it's yeah. It'd be very hard to improve one without improving the other. Um. Yeah. Yeah. If we so we we're talking about we're t- when we're talking about VO two max, we're all we're obviously talking about going at maximum. But another way to think about this is. Is what happens to your heart rate when you're at rest. So as you train, uh, your resting heart rate decreases, and the reason that is 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 because your body is becoming more, um, you know, is b- becoming more efficient uh, at utilizing oxygen. So, uh, you know your your body doesn't need to make as many pumps per minute because each each pump it's utilizing. More of that oxygen, um, and that—that's how that's how elite athletes can get their their resting heart rate down to thirty beats per minute, in the twenty beats per minute in some cases.
2: Well, I think it's also you know the stroke volume as well, right? Like if you stroke volume, can, yeah, yeah, pump more blood per beat, then there's more oxygen going out per beat as well. Mm-hmm. Right, so.
1: If we go back to the metrics, um, the you know VO2 max metrics are milliliters per minute per kilogram. How much does like body composition play a factor when when calculating or estimating someone's uh, VO2 max?
2: Well, for the absolute term, it doesn't make a difference, right? But for the relative term, which is like relative to body weight, mm-hmm. it's going to make a huge difference because. Um, Almost universally, like, even if you lose muscle as well, if you just lose weight, your VO2 max is going to stay, like, the absolute term is going to stay about the same. So, like, the numerator stays high. Um, and so the more weight you lose, the higher your relative VO2 max is going to be.
0: It's it's kind of like asking the question, uh, you know, watts per ver- versus watts per kilogram, right? Right you know it's it's sort of it's sort of the same thing
1: yeah no i i agree and i think that's um you know maybe maybe part of the the conversation too is is that you know if if you can't change your overall absolute vo2 max you can change, you have room to improve your body composition you know that yep. that's that's a much lower hanging fruit than than trying to improve your you know absolute vo2 max Depends on, yeah, depends on what the starting
0: point is. Uh, Some people don't have weight to lose. Some people do definitely have weight to lose. So, right. Yeah.
2: Well, Um, and it's like, if you're tapped out on like the actual absolute numbers, um, mm -hmm. your your body composition is probably actually also good at that point. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So...
1: So let's let's talk about this. So, I mean, part part of the contentious topic is you know the trainability of VO two max. Uh, you know there there are conflicting viewpoints on this. Um, there's been a lot of studies on this. Uh, it's it's been shown obviously that someone who's untrained can come in and train and improve their VO two max. Um, but we've also you know we, we've been talking about this how you know elite athletes oftentimes. Uh, their VO two max is just going to be what their VO two max is. Uh, there's, there's not much room for improvement there. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit more about like some specifics of, of how one could train their VO two max.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I remember in exercise physiology classes that I took, uh, five years ago at this point, um, we were, the textbooks were talking about how you can improve your VO2 max for probably a couple months but then you hit a plateau and you can't really improve it after that and um, it seems like that whole concept is up up for debate now um, so
2: well and so here's the thing I'll say is that you know this, this podcast topic is VO2 max right and so what we're talking about here is improving measured VO2 max Um, Whether or not that can just continue to improve forever, I actually, I I don't know, but I also don't really care because um, what we do know is that you can continue to improve your, let's say, your five-minute power output Mm -hmm. more and more and more, right? So, you know, if if I have an athlete and their five-minute power keeps going up, but their measured VO2 max does not, I don't care, right? (laughs) Um, That's Mm -hmm. fine. Um, but I, I am sort of of the camp that you can um, continue to improve VO2 max. Um, it just is going to slow down at a certain point. Um, and something we didn't talk about before is, is the age, you know, how age affects this equation, right? So yep. um, it's pretty widely known that your VO2 max will eventually start to drop, um, you know, as you get older and older. So, you know, maybe into your, I think they say above, you know, maybe your late 30s is when it starts to kind of slowly drop each year. Um, but it stays pretty steady until you're maybe 50 or 60 for men, and then it really starts to kind of decline more rapidly thereafter. Um, so yeah, that, that I, is one factor to think about.
0: I have done the I've done the research on how VO2 max changes <laughs> with age and um you know it's it it decreases more rapidly the older you get so it starts off with a slow decrease and then it gets more and more and more rapid so it's not it's not a linear decrease
2: and right. one thing i will say too is that it it seems like if you continue to do hard training it will decline at a less rapid rate so you're slowing right. that decline with training you know and and i um you know i have older athletes who have vo2 max measurements from you know like once every decade you mm-hmm. know and in some of those guys you know who are 50 or 60 now it's the same as when they were 35 or 45 right like it's mm-hmm. just they've they've sort of been able to kind of they haven't improved it maybe but it also hasn't gone down um yeah but yeah maybe can we can, you re-
1: can you reverse those aging effects at all like let's say you take 10 years off of hard training and your your vo2 max decreases pretty rapidly at that point because you've gotten 10 years older and you haven't been training can you reverse that at a later age as well or do you have to kind of stay on top of your training throughout that aging process
0: i think it depends on your starting point so you're if like if we're taking a, a 50 year old person and they're they haven't exercised at all in their life and they're coming off the couch and they're you know smoker bad diet and then we completely radically change their lifestyle their vo2 max will improve even though they're so old uh but if we're taking an elite athlete um who's been training at an elite level their entire life uh the likelihood that they're going to improve their vo2 max in their 50s is is slim to none sure
2: well maybe we should talk about what what that (laughs) training would look like yeah um, and there's there's a lot of debate here as well this This area is probably more rife with debate than any of the other things we've talked about so far, and um Dylan, you're probably the most familiar with with the differing viewpoints from the research community. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean i've I, so
0: I've done videos on what the optimal uh, or, or like what the most effective intervals are. And a lot of times, these studies are, are looking at changes in VO2 max. Um, you know, there's a... Uh, I, I'm, I think... I'm trying to remember the, the exact conclusion I came to in that video. Um, Tabatas seem to perform super well. Um, I seem to remember uh, a Steven Seiler study where he looked at 4-minute intervals versus 8-minute intervals versus 16-minute intervals... Interestingly enough, it seems like seems like the eight minute intervals did the best. And when I say did the best here, um, I can't remember what the change to VO two max is. This is this is the change in in performance. So this might be slightly off topic to exactly what we're talking about. Um, I yeah, I seem to I seem to remember coming to the conclusion that. Tabatas are particularly effective and and probably this eight minute interval range is particularly effective as well.
2: Yeah and so the way that I look at this is what is the training age of an individual so um, Ron Statt is like one of the big proponents uh, he's a researcher he's one of the big proponents of uh, like Tabata style intervals Mm -hmm. Um, so for those listeners who aren't familiar with that term that's like a like a forty twenty or thirty thirty, these really kind of like short on off um, intervals, um, and and they've shown that those compared to like a constant workload exercise are more effective in improving VO two max. But that's in largely untrained individuals, um, mm-hmm. and so a hypothesis that I would have or put forth about this is that those are just harder to execute for um, untrained people um mm-hmm. you know like pacing a hard 5 or 8 minute interval requires some skill and some grit um to do effectively and so i think it's it's more of like a practical conclusion than it is a true physiological conclusion and that's just yeah. that's hypothesis and so an interesting this this actually
0: goes straight it grows right to the point that you were just making actually is is um the tabata style interview interval was actually designed as a way to Uh, I believe it was like a way to easily reach VO2 max, if I'm not mistaken, as opposed to doing some sort of constant workload. Uh, They found that doing these repeated short efforts with short rest, you know, short effort, short rest, short effort, short rest, um, was a way for, you know, was a simple way in the lab that they, they could get people to get to their maximum as opposed to having them do some sort of steady effort.
2: Yeah, well, and I think the other thing, too, that I think about as a coach is the phenotype of the rider. So um, Mm -hmm. depending on what type of rider you are, um, the way that you reach your VO2 max is going to be different, right? So, um, you know, if I'm thinking about steady intervals, if I'm dealing with a sprinter or somebody who has a big anaerobic capacity, I'm going to give them longer VO2 max intervals. So they might get the the six or the eight-minute intervals because – Um, for the first two or three minutes of that interval, a large part of, um, where that energy comes from is going to be anaerobic in nature. Right. Yeah. Um, so like for the first two minutes of the interval, I'm not even going to be working hard. I'm going to be nose breathing doing 450 Watts. Um, but then, you know, once that's out, you know, then, then, you know, finally, maybe the oxygen uptake reaches its max and I'm going to be, you know, gasping like a fish.
0: Right. And so when I we think talk this
2: about- I Go think ahead. this
0: is a critical crux of this conversation. So I think a lot of people, because vo2 max intervals, you're riding at your quote vo2 max intensity, if you ride at vo2 max intensity for one minute, that does not necessarily mean you're at your vo2 max. In fact, you're probably not. Right. Um, and I know that there are a lot of coaches that that's actually a pet peeve of theirs that, that this intensity level is even called VO2 max because uh, that's not necessarily what's going on just because you're at that intensity. Um, you have to be at that intensity for a certain amount of time in order to achieve VO2 max. So I think that's an, in, an important thing to understand. Um, just because you're riding at VO2 max intensity, does not necessarily mean you're at vo2 max
2: yeah yeah it's um so so here's like a good um you know way that you can all go out and verify what dylan and i are saying here go out and ride at your vo2 max intensity for two minutes and tell me what happens with your breathing (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you're not going to be breathing super hard initially like it takes time for that o2 uptake to increase for whatever reason I, I think it's like metabolically speaking you know when we're asking our body to produce 450 watts or you know whatever the number is of power um, it's going to rely on the quicker sources first so um, you know phosphocreatine first you know and then you know then there's this anaerobic component um, that's just providing really quick energy and slowly oxygen consumption is rising until we reach that peak. And so it's with this all said, it's my feeling that, um, you know, you need to do four four minutes at the minimum for VO two max work is mm-hmm. sort of my feeling. And I think O2 uptake kinetics differ a bit between people, like we said, depending on your profile. Um, but I think anything I, under that is just not vo2 max work I think some people so so you're
0: advocate, advocating for doing steady efforts and I'm and I I'm actually in agreement um, I've have, I have people do steady efforts all the time I think there are some people that could make the argument that if if you want to do more of a tabata style training to raise your vo2 max each so let's let's say you're doing 30 30s just as an example each 30 second interval that you're doing um, you're using more oxygen with each with each interval like the first intervals are going to be highly anaerobic and then and then they're going to become more and more aerobic by uh as you reach the end of that session correct
2: yeah i i just don't know if that's the quickest way to get there i mean you talked about Mm -hmm. like why mr tabata dr tabata invented these intervals Mm -hmm. it is a guy there was a dude named mr tabata Yep. <laughs> but uh, and it, it, yeah, and it it
0: originally wasn't wasn't designed to be a workout. It's it's kind of something that he used in the lab. So
2: I mean, it, it is for sure the case that you know if you're doing these 30s right? Like maximally, uh, yes. Initially, the first handful are going to be anaerobic. In the same way that even with a steady interval, the first couple minutes are going to have a big anaerobic contribution. Um, but yes, mm-hmm. eventually you're going to run out you're like not going to be able to recover that anaerobic system anymore. And eventually it'll have to be aerobic. Um, But you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know what the best way to skin the cat is. I think if the goal is to spend as much time at 100% of VO2 max as possible, you can't beat Mm -hmm. a steady effort at a high cadence. Um, So I want to, I want to see what your take is on this.
0: I, I, when I'm prescribing VO2 max intervals to somebody, I almost tell them to just ignore. Uh, I don't tell them to completely ignore the power, but I, what I tell them is that by the last interval, uh, it, like you want to average the highest possible power across the interval sessions. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily something where you're trying to stay in a certain zone. It's like the higher, the better. Um, and, and I want to know what you think about that. Do you tell somebody to stick to a certain zone or is it like go out and smash it as hard as you can within reason for the first ones? Cause you don't want to blow up on the first couple, but averaging the highest possible power across an interval session.
2: Yeah. I, I think there's like a, like a practical answer to this. And then there's also like the, the optimal answer. Um, and I think optimally, yes, you would, you would smash every single interval and you would go out really, really hard, and the power would fade, but the you'd reach 100% VO2 max quicker, you know, and then you just need to hang on and keep it there. Just because power is dropping, you know, even if your power drops to zone 4, as long as you're, you're gasping and your heart rate stays high, you're still at VO2 max. Um, however, I find that it's these, doing it this way can be really psychologically challenging for people. And mm-hmm. so, um, I do like to see people start hard, um, to ensure that we are kind of actually achieving 100% of VO2 max or close to it. But, um, I, I do, I do tell people to pace these a little bit. Um, but more importantly, I have people really pay attention to the sensations they're experiencing. Um, and the one thing that I'm looking for, you know, as an indication of proper execution of these is that the legs are not loading up, but the uh, the heart rate is super high and the breathing, most importantly, is really, really ragged. You know, mm-hmm. and, and you, like, what are we after here? We're, we're trying to stress the heart, right, yeah. is, is what, what I'm doing here. That's, that's why it's important that you're breathing really hard is because then we know that the heart is getting stretched, you know, and there are mechanisms in the heart that are detecting that stretch. Um, detecting that you're you're sort of pushing it, and that's what's causing the adaptations. Um, so I I hope that that sort of answered your question, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in in uh, so kind of I I guess I sort of have a hybrid
1: approach of both of you guys. Um, like one thing that I'll do is I'll re- try and get my athletes to negative split their VO two max intervals, where the first one I want it to be hard like it's like very hard all you know if I'm doing four by fours or something all of them should feel like max efforts like when you get to like you're counting down those last ten seconds because you just want it to be over Um, but I do want them to look at their power for the first one um, and, and the goal being to try and negative split but by negative split I mean increase your power across all four intervals so like mm-hmm. let's say you do the first one four minutes at 400 watts I want the next one to try and be 402 watts, 405 watts, 410 watts, um, and I think like psychologically that helps push yourself to that max limit a little bit easier across those you know those subsequent intervals because these are so hard. It, it can be if you're just completely um, overlooking power altogether. Um, like maybe you don't look at power very much in the first one, but the, the next one's like sometimes you do need that psychological push to keep yourself going at that hard effort because these are these are so hard like most people most athletes uh, especially cyclists like vo2 max are their least favorite workouts. Uh, Andrew you and I might be the some of the outliers because like vo2 max are my personal favorite intervals to do um, and I, I know Andrew you like the higher intensity stuff do. Um, but they're very very hard like you should get done with your vo2 max workout and feel quite gassed. Um, versus like a, you know, a tempo workout or threshold workout, like you, you probably aren't completely smashed by the, by the end of that one. Um, but that way it just gives them a target, something to aim for, um, and, and helps them push themselves harder than they thought that they could or wanted to, um, versus just letting it to power completely. And then once they're not able to, to, you know, like let's say it's open-ended, like we're doing four minutes, five to eight intervals uh if that's six interval you see power significantly dropping off then maybe we've kind of reached the limit for the day um and then we can kind of shut it down because at some point you you aren't going to be able to achieve vo2 max anymore you've just kind of expended all of your energy in that system um but that that's just one approach that i use uh with my athletes
2: so here's here's a question for you dylan and so this is sort of um I listened to a really, I don't remember what it was. But it was a good podcast with Sebastian Weber, who's like a sort of a leading physiologist. And, you know, we they were talking about maybe like five by five intervals. And he's like, you know, I, I don't know what VO2, like, I don't know what VO2 max intervals means. Like, he's one of these coaches who's like, <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: like what, are you, what are you talking about? You know, like a five by five can be so many different things depending on, you know, the recovery interval and, and how you're pacing these. Um so my question for you, Dylan, is um when you prescribe VO two max work, what are you thinking about in your prescription for the uh the rest interval? You know, are you doing like a one to one? Or are you doing like a like if you're doing five by five, are you doing I I find that like a complete rest, like fully complete recovery between efforts would be more like almost like eight minutes. Are you yep. doing an incomplete recovery, maybe like two or three minutes? And and then what's what's the logic? Yeah. It's uh, so
0: when I mentioned earlier that some coaches have a pet peeve about even, even calling this intensity VO two max intensity, I was probably referring to Sebastian Weber there. Uh, we probably listened to the same podcast where he was, where he was saying that. And it it made a lot of sense. Um, I don't have a problem calling it VO two max intensity, but I, I could see how physiologists would be a little peeved by that. Um, yeah, as far as the rest intervals go, I generally go for a one to one ratio. Um, uh, maybe the exception to that is if, uh, if I have somebody doing eight minute intervals, j- sometimes I'll do, um, do a four minute rest between eight minute intervals. I think there's actually some research on this, uh, uh, where they found that, that, uh, like four minutes was enough for complete recovery. Um, which is interesting because I, I found that in the in the real world when I'm doing this it seems like the more <laughs> the more recovery the better the next effort is right but um it might have been it actually might have been a Siler study that showed that uh like four minutes between four minute and eight minute efforts was was enough for was enough for full recovery so yeah I mean if, if I have somebody doing four minute efforts I'll it'll probably be four minutes of recovery. If I have somebody doing eight minute efforts, it'll probably also be four minutes of recovery unless I have, unless somebody is training for something specific where, uh, I don't know, like maybe, maybe at the end of this road race, there's going to be an eight minute climb and that's like the only climb of the race and they don't necessarily need repeatability. They need eight minute power. Um, that's, that's a situation where I would actually increase the rest interval.
2: Yeah. yeah right. that's, so you're saying
1: that's, like if you, if you were working if you were trying to work an athlete's like absolute max power at VO2 max, then mm-hmm. then maybe you'd add more rest in because you're trying to get the most power out of each of those intervals. Um Correct. if you're actually just w- working on improving VO two max as an energy system, if we say, mm-hmm. um, then just being fully recovered or you know, 4 minutes should be all you need to be quote unquote fully recovered and then getting right back yeah. into it.
0: Yeah, I would say that probably it has more to do with repeat repeatability and making that workout more specific to racing cuz rarely in racing do you do you know, you know a, an all out effort and then you've got a ton of time to recover before your next all out effort, right? Um right. a lot of racing is about repeatability, being able to repeat high intensity efforts over and over and over again. So
2: it probably has more to do with that. Um, so before we wrap up, one of the things that I wanted to kind of mention, this goes into the category of recovery. Um, so hopefully this will <laughs> dovetail nicely is, you know, we've talked a little bit on the show already about O2 uptake kinetics and sort of like what that O2 uptake curve looks like. So, you know, if you've done your lab test, you know, and you know that after three minutes you know, of steady pedaling at 450 watts, you reach 100% of your VO2 max, right? For those first three minutes, there's this period where oxygen consumption is not accounting for all of the energy that you're using, right? So if we we kind of are imagining this curve, um, the area above the curve accounts for the oxygen debt that you're accumulating, you know, or like the difference in energy contribution. So there's that anaerobic side of things. Um, and it's really interesting. So if you look at the recovery, um, post VO2 max interval, you take that area above the curve and you would flip it and you'd put it on the end, (laughs) you know, so it's like a, like a curve going down and it's the exact inverse of that other curve. So there's that like post-exercise oxygen consumption increase that happens, um, and it's directly proportional. So I think that that's kind of an interesting thing just for people to keep in mind or to understand. Um, if you so, so are you suggesting a one-to-one ratio here? Uh, no, no, I'm not because um, if you're doing your VO2 max intervals correctly, you're spending more than. You know, more than a little bit of time at 100% of VO2 max. So we're Mm -hmm. accounting for that time leading up to the oxygen consumption reaching 100%. So I think that'll probably take like two or three minutes at the minimum. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you can feel this when you finish a VO2 max interval or a sprint, right? Like in any sort of effort that's anaerobic, um, you're creating this oxygen debt that has to be paid later. Um and so like you do a maximal sprint, right? Like or like a let's say a 20, 30 second sprint, and then you stop pedaling, you're breathing probably the hardest after you've stopped pedaling. And that is you paying the oxygen debt. Mm-hmm. Um they call this the epoch effect, um, is I think the acronym that they use, like ex post oxygen consumption. Um You know, and And this why sometimes you'll
1: see heart rate continue to climb too, right? You might see your max heart rate twenty seconds after your effort ends or something.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because we we we've talked about this tons on this podcast. Recovery from any of these efforts happens aerobically, right? So that's what's happening here. And so epoch, you know, when we talk about it in the cycling world, we're talking typically about that period immediately after your interval where you're still breathing really hard for let's say like one or two minutes and it slowly tapers off and then you're recovered. Um, But people in the weightlifting world, for instance, talk about it on a longer time scale. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, people who are into like body composition stuff. So when you do like high intensity work, right? Like, yes, you're not burning a lot of fat during that effort. But the idea is, is that maybe in the big scheme of things, you might be burning more fat over the course of your whole day because your right. metabolic rate is kicked up for the remainder of the day following that, and you're burning more fat then. So this is yep. sort of like talked about within the debate of like long, slow intensity stuff for weight loss versus hit workouts. Um, and mm-hmm. people like hit obviously, because it's, it's easy to execute and it's efficient. Um, and the EPOC effect is is why that might actually work well for fat loss.
0: Yeah. I think if you talk to any, like, crossfitter or bodybuilder of any kind, if you talk to him about cardio, they're like, oh, hit all day.
1: Just hit, hit, hit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How do you think that would relate to timing of, like, your workouts? So, like, let's say your your metabolic rate is increased for the remainder of the day or whatever until you're fully recovered. Um, would, Would the timing of your workout, whether it's, like, in the morning or the middle of the day or the end of the day affect Your your fat burn rate.
2: Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I I, yeah, I'm gonna sure there's a study or something on that. There's there's definitely studies on like the optimal time to do workouts. Um, and there's a lot of co-founders here, and I would say that maybe the optimal time in terms of like fat burning would be later in the day, but you don't want to do this because you're gonna be all turned up after your workout <laughs> and then your sleep quality might suffer and so you get get one advantage but then you you know have a disadvantage in bad quality sleep right or you're really hot yeah when you i mean sleep. that's what i was kind of leaning or
1: that's where i was leaning was it, w- it would make sense that it'd be later in the day would I, be better
0: i but. have heard i have heard people made the argument make the argument that it's good to do cardio in the morning so that way you're burning fat throughout the course of the day uh and my i i feel like these people were not talking from you know it, it's not like they read this in a study i feel like they kind of like pulled it out of their ass but uh i could be completely wrong maybe there is a study that suggests you actually burn more fat uh over the long run if you work out in the morning versus work out in the afternoon i just haven't seen it
1: all right, guys. Well, I think we're going to wrap that for today. This is already a 90-minute episode. Uh, we have had a couple listener questions come in. So we're right now we're kind of thinking maybe we'll do a whole special episode where we just do a Q&A and answer some of these listener questions. So keep sending those to us. You can send those to info at ignitioncoachco.com. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear more from you guys. Uh, if we get enough questions, then we will do a special episode uh, maybe as early as next week if you can send them over the, over the next five, six days, we get fitted into the schedule next week. Um, but yeah, that's going to wrap it for today. Uh, thanks, guys. This is awesome. It's good to get another topic in and have some more discussion. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes tune in next week for another endurance training related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event catch y'all soon let's go